Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, continuing our series going through the Ten Commandments. This morning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is our text, the sixth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 13 says this. You shall not murder. That's it. Some superheroes have no problem with murder. The Punisher kills criminals by definition as punishment for their crimes. But a lot of heroes, most of them in fact, avoid killing as much as they can whenever you read the comic books or watch the movies. Perhaps no costume hero is more devoted to the cause of not killing than Batman. He's known for it. He doesn't kill people. Because his parents were gunned down right in front of him, he's always hated guns. But their deaths have caused him to not only to swear off guns, but to swear off killing altogether, killing anyone, even without the guns. He thinks that if he were to do this, if he were to start killing his villains, then he would become just like his villains. He'd be no better than they are. He's afraid that once he crosses that line, he won't be able to go back, that he'll kill more and more for lesser and lesser reasons until he eventually truly becomes the villain that he knows he's capable of being. And I think that's admirable for a fictional character to come to that conclusion that he's going to do and act that way. But there's one problem with Batman's no-killing rule. Batman is a murderer. For someone who has a no-killing rule, he kills a lot of dudes. He excuses himself every time somehow because he says, I don't actually murder them, I just let them die. They happened to die while I was in their presence. I didn't kill them. But when you let someone die after you push them into a vat of acid, I think that's murder. I don't think you get to say, well, I didn't kill them, the the acid did. The fall killed them. I just happened to be the one who pushed them. He killed them. If you crash a train and leave them on it to die rather than saving them, you killed them. So even though Batman thinks he hasn't, Batman has broken the sixth commandment. He's a murderer. My question today is, have you broken the sixth commandment? Are you a murderer? It might be simple for you to reflexively say, no, I haven't killed anyone. I I am not a murderer. You can look at it. You can see how I say that Batman is an unintentional murderer, but a murderer all the same. But you are confident that you are not in the same boat. You haven't pushed anyone into a vat of acid, at least not lately. But I think as you'll see this morning, that you shouldn't be so sure about this. So today, we're going to examine God's command not to murder by answering the same four questions that we have for every commandment so far. First of all, why is killing someone wrong? Why is murder wrong? Why should we obey this command? Two, how do we break this commandment? How are we murderers today? Three, how has Christ fulfilled and transformed this commandment for us? And four, what do we do now to obey this command today in light of all that Christ has done uh, for us and through this commandment? So the first question we have to answer this morning is the most obvious answer in our minds, maybe of all the questions that we've asked yet. Why is it wrong to murder people? But the fact that I think the question has such an obvious answer in our minds 
doesn't mean that we should skip over the question, just skip past, yeah, murder's obviously wrong, let's get on to something else that we might not necessarily agree on. Because I think a lot of the time, it's the implicit beliefs that we have, the things that we assume that we actually need a better understanding of. We have to ask and answer the question, why is murder wrong? So we'll have a better understanding of how we might avoid this same sin today. As easy as it might sound to avoid killing an innocent person. So why is this wrong? Why is it wrong to murder? Well, murder upends the natural order and the natural design of God. God designs, he gives life, so we now shouldn't take it. He breathes into Adam. He animates the dust. So now who are we to suffocate that breath? After the great flood, he told Noah that murder would actually forfeit your own life if you commit it. Genesis 9, verses 6 and 7. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So do you see there how contrary murder is to the plan of God for his earth, for his creation? The first command he gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first covenant he made with Noah after the flood, after he's restarting the human race, was he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Make more humans. I need more of you filling the earth. Fill the earth with people. And you can't do that and also kill people at the same time. Every murder you commit is one more birth that you've got to have. And even the math on that eventually starts to break down. A murder takes like no time at all, at least I assume not. But birth is nine months plus. You can't fill the earth and also be murdering people at the same time. Murder directly contradicts God's plan for his creation. But it also contradicts God's plan for how his creation is supposed to relate to itself. How his people are supposed to relate to each other. I've referred a few times throughout the series to the tables of the law. The first table, which has the first four or five commandments, and it deals with how we are to love God. And then the second table, which has the rest of the Ten Commandments. And it deals with how we are supposed to love each other. So it's wrong to murder because you can't obey the second table of the law, how you are supposed to love your fellow people if the first thing that you do is kill them. Try honoring your father and mother after murdering them. You can't do it. Actually, don't try that. Don't give that a shot. Take my word for it. You can't do it. But if you were to kill them, there is no way that you now could go back and honor them. It doesn't matter if you don't steal from someone, if you do steal their life. They can keep all their possessions, but if you take their life from them, it doesn't make any difference. You can't obey the other commandments, any of the one another's in Scripture, if the first thing you do to someone else is kill them. Or even really, if it's the last thing you do to someone else is to kill them. The second table of the law was meant to usher in a new order of life, a new way of being as people. The whole law really was meant to do this, but how we treat one another, the pursuit of interpersonal justice, that was a revolutionary concept at the time that God gave these Ten Commandments. No longer, once he said this, was it survival of the fittest, was it survival of the strongest. No more could your pursuit of power be at whatever cost, 
it couldn't be excused by your own ability to be able to take that power from someone else. Death at the hands of another human should no longer be the daily fear of anyone in the people of God. The law is expressly forbidding this kind of society where just because you have something doesn't mean that it actually belongs to you. It actually is, belongs to whoever can take it from you. The law is counteracting that same idea. God has replaced communal competition with communal love. That's the new standard. And all of that, all of that community is built on the basic fact, the basic idea that no man should take the life of another. Murder is wrong because it upends the natural order. It's the opposite of how God has planned for his world to work. It keeps you from obeying the other commands. You can't do anything else if you're murdering people. And it denies God's new standard of communal love from one person to the next. The new way that we're supposed to live and breathe and be around our fellow humans. So if that's why killing an innocent person is wrong, then how do we break this command today? If that's why murder is wrong, how does it look like for us to commit murder today? Well, first of all, I have to point out the obvious conclusion of this, that murder is committed today when you murder someone. You obey this command today by not murdering someone. It's in the definition, isn't it? If God has told you not to murder, then you break the command when you commit murder. You break the command by forcefully taking the life of another person on your own authority, by your own free choice. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4, it was murder. But I would guess that we're all on the same page with that, right? I don't think anyone's thinking, oh, I didn't think that that murder was actually murder. That clear murder right there, right in front of me. I didn't know that that was murder. I think we have an implicit definition, an implicit understanding of what it is to murder and how we might break the command if we were actually to commit obvious murder in front of us. So now let me offer some less obvious cases that I think biblically still qualify as murder from the text. Negligent homicide, manslaughter, you causing the death of someone else through your own deliberate negligence, biblically, is still murder. In the Old Testament law, when God is expounding on the Ten Commandments to give a fuller list, a better understanding of his do's and don'ts for his people, it said that you were guilty if someone fell off your roof because you didn't put a proper railing around it. That if they on your roof fell off because your rail wasn't high enough, that was actually your fault, you're liable for their murder, and now you are going to have to pay the penalty with your own death. That's from Deuteronomy 22. It also said that you are guilty if you have a bull that you know is violent. You know he might be able to get out and kill someone, and you don't put a proper fence around him to make sure that he doesn't get out, and then he gets out and he kills someone. That's actually your fault. You now have to pay the penalty for death along with the bull uh, because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. That's from Exodus 21. So even though you didn't push them off your roof, Even though you didn't put the bull on a leash and then sick them on this person, you're liable for these actions to the point of death because it's your fault. And I think whenever we understand that in the context of murder, it's going to give us a big clue to how we should understand not just the negative side of this command, do not murder, but also the positive side that God is calling us to. How he's calling us to be people of life, which we're going to see later. Here's another act that the Bible would call murder. Abortion. The fetus in the womb at every stage of development is a living human person 
So to forcefully kill that innocent person is murder. There is not another coherent category to put it in. It's murder, by definition. You cannot obey the sixth commandment and also abort children at the same time. Now, the finer points of this discussion are beyond the bounds of what I'm going to be able to speak to today. This cannot become a whole sermon based on the finer points of uh, abortion, abortion policy. Things like how we should form our specific laws around this issue. Laws about whether we should treat the woman who gets the abortion and the doctor who performs the abortion the same way or differently. Questions about how we are supposed to clearly speak as a pro-life community and come to a consensus on special cases, on these different diseases, different medical diagnoses, what actually constitutes an abortion or not, that kind of terminology. I can't get into all of those things because it's not our focus today, but I do think that we should come together to understand and agree to the basic fact that when an abortion has happened, a murder has happened. And if that wasn't sensitive enough for you, here's another one this morning. Suicide. The killing of oneself is still murder. It still breaks this commandment. And for those of you who are left behind by a suicide, I think you're probably most likely to agree with me here. I mean, what difference does it make to you whether they killed themselves or whether someone else killed them? They're still gone. They're gone all the same. They've been taken from you. And even now, there's not any justice to be had. There's no one left to hold accountable for this crime. Suicide, self-murder is still murder. Now, I think I have to pause this morning just for a second to remind everyone in this room, even before we get to Christ in in our questions, that breaking the Ten Commandments, yes, that's evil. Yes, that's sin. It's bad to do so. But it's not spiritually fatal. It's sin, yes, absolutely, but it's not unforgivable sin. You can come back from these sins, even the sin of murder. So if you are a murderer in the room, and I think we're going to expand that definition in a moment to include all of us, if your negligence has led to someone else's death, if you've had an abortion, or maybe if you've pressured someone else into one, If you're thinking in your head right now about a loved one who committed suicide, I want you to know that the fullness of forgiveness is available even for people who do these things. Christ has defeated every sin on the cross. There is not an asterisk there that says, except for you, in your case. The hope and promise of forgiveness is open to murderers, just like it is for all lawbreakers. And I think that's going to be really important for us to remember when we see in a moment how Christ has transformed this command for us. But now that we've seen some examples of biblical murder, let me offer two situations of killing which may not be murder. And these distinctions are why uh, the, the old translation in the King James Version, thou shalt not kill, is actually not as precise as it needs to be. It's better to say thou shalt not murder. It's less than ideal to translate that word as kill rather than that word as murder. And the first reason is the first example, the first situation is the death penalty. The governing authorities killing a guilty person, especially for the crime of murder itself, wouldn't fall in a biblical category of murder. Remember what God said earlier, whoever spills man's blood by man shall his blood be spilled. 
the Old Testament law mandated the death penalty for certain crimes. And that standard is actually upheld in the New Testament, where the sword is given no longer to the church, to the people of God, but to the state to be able to carry out God's justice. So someone justly receiving the death penalty, that's not murder. Now, that on the other hand doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be pro-death penalty in our current system today. Again, that's beyond, that's outside the bounds of what we're doing here. But it does mean that theoretically there is a scenario in which the death penalty can be carried out in which it is not murder. The other situation that I want to draw your attention to would be wartime actions, self-defense. A soldier on the battlefield is not necessarily committing murder even when he takes someone else's life, even when he kills. God commanded Israel to go to war. There are some causes that are worth fighting for. I think there are such a thing as uh, just wars. And when you're on the battlefield, it's kill or be killed. So wartime killing is not automatically murder. Again, though, due to the complexities of modern life and modern warfare, I don't know that this actually gives us that much direct guidance when it comes to the complicated ethical questions of unjust wars or of immoral orders that you've been given. All we should take from this is that it means that Christians can be soldiers without necessarily breaking the sixth commandment. It is murder if it is forcefully taking the life of another person on your own authority or free choice. If it doesn't meet that criteria, then I don't think we can confidently say that it's murder. So now that we know how the command is broken in the most literal sense, the most direct sense, let us turn to how Jesus has fulfilled and transformed this commandment for us. Our third question on the sixth commandment today. Christ's fulfillment of this command as I think we'll see, is one of the more powerful fulfillments that we'll see throughout this entire series on the Ten Commandments. Jesus never murdered anyone, and yet Jesus was murdered. But I don't think we can just check that box and say, well, Christ fulfilled his command, no deaths at his hands. I think we have to remember that he himself was killed unjustly. He was murdered. He wasn't the killer, he was the kill e. And at the end of his life, it would have even been justified for him to lash out, to kill in self-defense, right? He makes that same point explicitly in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He's saying, even as he's being arrested, even as he knows he's going to the cross to die for the sins of the world, he's saying, if I wanted this to be a fight, if I wanted to kill rather than be killed, I could. That's a fight I win every time. We even now would look back on it and say, well, that's self-defense. He was at the point of death. He would have had every earthly justification to take the lives of the people who were trying to take his life. And yet... He never does that. He's being wrongfully killed even though he's innocent. And yet he refuses to murder. He allows himself to be killed so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, so his gospel would be accomplished. Jesus fulfilled this commandment. He allowed himself to be killed, not so that he could take life, but so that he could give it freely. He said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. John 10, 18. 
And he later said that this, this act of giving his own life on the behalf of other people is the greatest act of love that he could possibly commit. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So you see, by him dying rather than killing, he fulfilled the command in its fullest sense, and he showed his love for you, the one for whom he died. And I think this act of love is amplified by the fact that he died for someone like you, someone like me. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he shows his love for us in that while we were still murderers, Christ died for us. And he died, not simply as an act of beautiful sacrifice that we can point to and say, oh, how nice, but so that through his death, He might atone. He might pay the penalty for the sins of the world. He died so that he would rise from the grave to defeat the power of sin and death, which is the power that holds his people hostage. He died. He was killed so that he might give his life to all who repent from their sin and who believe in his gospel. The work he accomplished through his fulfillment of the law in his life, in his sacrificial death, in his glorious resurrection. That's what he's giving to his people by fulfilling this command. You see, in Christ, the sixth command is totally fulfilled because we are no longer the takers of life. We are the receivers of his life. And that gospel, that truth, is very good news for us because whether we realize it or not, Christ has also transformed this command. So now we are all, every one of us, murderers. Even without explicit murders, which we've already talked about, even if you haven't done any of those things that we've already listed, you are still a murderer by Christ's definition because of what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. He's presenting clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount his new way of life for his people. And he says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, file, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift." Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. While I don't have time today to really exposit these verses, to really break them down, let me point out that he is upholding the command not to murder, and he is also elevating the sin of anger to a similarly sinful state. They're not quite equal. We're not going to say that all sin is equal. That you being murder is literally the same thing as you having, uh, as you being angry is literally the same thing as you murdering someone. But we are going to say that they're both sins. That you can't say one is fine and the other is sin because they are both in a similarly sinful state. 
I can't hear this command not to murder and think that I've simply checked the box because no one has fallen off of my roof. My unchecked anger is the seedbed of murder. My unchecked anger is also sin. Cain kills Abel in the first murder in Genesis 4.8, but he does so because he was so angry in Genesis 4.5. This anger, God says, was crouching at the door. It was desiring to rule over Cain. And without the anger, the murder never would have happened. Jesus is telling us that we think we're totally fine. We think that we're totally righteous because we've avoided the final effect, the final end point of our sin, of our anger. But he's saying that we're wrong. The root of murder, which is found in anger, is sinful to the extent that it might as well be murder. You can't confidently claim that you are a righteous non-murderer just because you haven't gotten there yet. So Christ transformed the command by revealing to us our inclusion within it. I mean, who hasn't gotten angry to the point that they wanted to hurt someone else in their anger? My child did that yesterday. She doesn't have the power, really, to inflict real pain on me. She was mad, though. You could see it in her little eyes. Yeah, that was sin. That might as well have been murder. He transformed the command because he showed that we are also murderers within it. We're out here bopping around in our own self-righteousness like we're all good. No way God could possibly be mad at me. I haven't murdered anyone. No way I might be worthy of his wrath. No way I might be worthy of hell. I do what he says. Look at this, sixth command, boom. I should get a tattoo of that, thou shalt not murder. That's like my new life slogan. All I have to do is not do that and I'm righteous. I follow the commandments. There are no murderers here. But all the while, we're harboring anger in our hearts, which Christ says makes us guilty before the law on this very command. Not even some separate command, some other command that he's given not to be unrighteously angry. This command, do not murder, is where we're guilty with our unchecked anger. So when you start examining anger in light of Christ's words here, it really starts to make you think, doesn't it? I mean, if anger is so sinful that it might as well be murder, why are so many Christians so mad all the time? Why are our Twitter battles known for being particularly nasty? Why are the political candidates that we are associated with, the ones that we so often seem to to cast our votes for, why are they the most likely ones to seem angry? Why do our pastors and leaders keep getting placed on administrative leave because they've created an abusive and hostile work environment in their anger? And when you start to think about it, it's enough to really make you angry, isn't it? It's enough to really make you thankful for the gospel, isn't it? Christ fulfilled this command. He died for our sins when we break this command, even though we break it so often and so recklessly. His fulfillment becomes even more important in light of how he's transformed it for us, too. So now what do we do? That's our fourth and final question this morning. In light of Christ fulfilling this command, in light of him also transforming it to elevate anger to a similar place, how can we obey this commandment today? Well, I think beyond the obvious, not killing people, I think we obey this command not to murder, not just by obeying that negative, do not, 
I think we also are to obey the implied positive, do. And what we do is to be a people who actively pursue a culture of life, a culture of human flourishing. We as Christians should be the most pro-life people on the planet in the fullest sense of the phrase. We don't kill, we heal. We don't allow our negligence to harm someone else. We intentionally take other people into account in every action we take. We don't abort, we adopt. We don't take our lives from our family and friends. We don't withdraw from them. We give our lives to them. We show God's love to them. Practically, I think what it looks like to be people who pursue a pro-life ethic in every sense of the word is that it looks like Christian charity. It looks like soup kitchens, homeless shelters, hospitals, and orphanages. It's policies and beliefs which put people over things, which put people over money. We seek the good of the people around us and ourselves by pursuing the things that lead to life and by avoiding the things that lead to death. So if our doctor tells us to quit smoking, I think as Christians we do it. If our wife tells us to stop working so hard because we're working ourselves to death, I think we do it. If our neighbor says that they can't afford food, I think we do all we can to help them. We choose the most abundant life we can possibly imagine rather than death, rather than death in every instance, in every opportunity. We are a people of life. And I think we should also be a people marked by love rather than anger, which leads to death. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15 say this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's saying that this is part of how you and everyone else knows that you have the life of Christ rather than the death of your sin. By your love in the face of anger. By your love in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution. If you don't abide in love for your brother and love for your fellow man, then you are abiding in death. You're on your way to a murder and you just haven't gotten there yet. People who call themselves Christians, but they're just so mad all the time. Those of us who go from one rant to another, from one argument to another, we're red-faced the whole time. We might call ourselves Christians, but John is saying, hey, you probably aren't. Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet, even in the face of terrible suffering and terrible persecution. We should be the first to smile, not frown. We should be the first to laugh, not yell. The first to apologize, not the first to be offended. When we do these types of things, we're not just being nice people. Though I think being a nice person is good. I think when we do these types of things, we're actually obeying this command not to murder. We're fulfilling the Ten Commandments in light of Christ's fulfillment of them. 
And I was thinking this week as uh, Tim Keller died, this man who has preached so many great sermons, written so many great books, his legacy, the one thing that people kept referring back to over and over was his charity, his joy, his ability to deal with critics, to deal with the world in such a happy, winsome, joyful way. That it didn't matter how many times people came after him. It didn't matter how angry they were at him. He never seemed to be angry at anyone else. When I think of someone who's obeying the positive side of do not murder, I think of Jesus, obviously, yes, first and foremost. But in the flesh, in front of me, the example that I've seen that I think of most often, I think Tim Keller is one of those. But I think the clearest and best way that we can be people of life who are also people of love, people who are anti-murderers in every sense, is to be people who give life to the people around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than taking it away, rather than merely allowing them to continue on toward their impending doom. We give them life, and we give them life by giving them the gospel. We avoid being murderers by loving them and giving them the gospel. We point them to the one who died so that they might have life. We love them enough to do all we can to avoid their eternal death. We press through the awkward interactions. We press through the fear in our own minds, through the inadequacies in our communication skills, through the the things we might not have an answer to. And I think we tell them that God loves them enough to die in their place, to die for their sins, So if they will only repent from their sins and believe in Christ's gospel, he will save them and he will give eternal life to them in the place of the death that they deserve. That's how we anti-murder them. We give them not just life, but life eternal. People who obey the sixth commandment ultimately, I think, are gospel people. We are evangelistic people. When we do everything we do, we think about the need for the people around us to receive life. So our decisions as a church should reflect that. Our decisions as moms and dads, co-workers, should reflect that. Our daily decisions and our mundane conversations, I think they should reflect this hope that we have that we might be able to give life to them. And when we are people who live in a culture of life, pursuing the flourishing of everyone around us, when we are people who are marked by love rather than anger and death, when we are people who share the gospel at every chance that we get, that's when we truly will obey God's command not to murder in the fullest sense. That's that's when we can confidently say, yes, this command, that's a check mark for me. I don't murder. I give life. And I give life through the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to read your word with your people. Thank you for this command that we no longer have to live in fear of murder, fear of being murdered. Thank you for this command that shows us a better way, a fuller life. Thank you for sending Christ to fulfill this command to be one who not only doesn't take life, but one who gives it. 
Thank you even for the transformation, showing us this painful seed of our anger and where it might lead. Help for us to be a people who are pro-life in every sense of the word, a people who are anti-murderers, a people who don't live in anger but live in joy, people who don't murder the people around us, but we do give your gospel to them. Help for us to be that as individuals, Help for us to be that as a church, and help for us as a church to work to be that as a culture. We love you, and we thank you for this command. In Jesus' name, amen.